0: settled into the retreat, those who've come for the March month, and those of you who are here now in your fifth week or more, spring has come with all its changing weather patterns and seasons. And we, i have been speaking in the evenings about the awakened heart and the awakened mind, not as, a, not as an ideal to use to judge yourself. You have done that successfully for long enough. <laughs> but as a deep reminder of who you are and what is really there in your own heart, your own Buddha nature, your own consciousness. Now, just as we've talked over some of these evenings about the seven factors or parts of the five spiritual faculties, I'd like to talk tonight about one of the Brahma Viharas. Last week we had a Dharma talk on metta, and tonight I'd like to talk about compassion. But first just to step back for a moment and talk about these qualities of the Brahma Viharas because they're actually all related in the heart. You could say love is the first of them. You know, you live in the you live in the Brahma Viharas say, "Oh, I live in metta, I live in upeka. It's where you're staying. (laughs) Love is the first, and it's the great connection of all things. Uh, um, Maybe it's that we all came out of the luminosity of the Big Bang, which was really the big flash, because there wasn't sound, but there was light. And we sort of remember that we were all in it together, and there's some very profound sense of non-separation or connection. And of course, when we feel this, and when we know this in a deep way, um, we start to feel at home in the world, because it is our home. And early in the mornings, in the forest monastery, before dawn, we would go out and walk to go to the temple building to chant. And many of the monks would do their metta practice or these chants in the forest on the way to the 3 a.m. chanting. And you hear these people coming from all these different huts and parts of the forest singing or chanting well-being to the the birds and the snakes and the insects and all the creatures of the forest just extending in this luminous darkness the heart of loving-kindness, which was how the Buddha first taught metta to the monks and nuns in the forest. And you start to feel that love, the sense of metta or love, is not just something gooey and sweet and beautiful, but that it has a a kind of courage to it when you're out in the dark and you can't see anything. Um, During the Second World War, a Norwegian pastor was called into the Gestapo headquarters and told to sit in the chair opposite a German officer. He had worked for the underground saving all those who were threatened, gypsies, gays, Jews. And so the interrogation began, and the Gestapo officer chief took out of his holster a German Luger pistol, placed the pistol right on the desk between himself and the Norwegian pastor. Without a moment's hesitation, the pastor reached into his satchel and pulled out his Bible and placed it right on the desk next to the German Luger. And the officer demanded, why did you do that? And the pastor replied, you have placed your weapon on the table. And so have I. And this is really Martin Luther King's phrase of, you know, of transform the world using only the weapons of love. So you can feel that it's, there's a sweetness, but there's something bigger and more mysterious walking through the jungle at night or facing in that scene, you know, the guns of another. And when love meets pain, it transforms. It turns into compassion. As if you're doing metta, may you be happy, may you be well, and then you think about somebody who's, in terrible pain or illness or accident or dying or, you know, in great grief, and you say, may you be happy, it doesn't feel right. Because they are not happy. In fact, and they're not going to be happy for a while. So there's a disconnect. You know what I'm talking about when you try to do that? And it's because what happens then is that when love feels the pain of another, it transforms into this next Brahma Vihara which is the vihara of compassion. And compassion is not pity. It's not this sort of squishy, oh, poor, that person there, you know, we're okay and we feel for them in some way. It too is fierce. It has a power to it. Again, from Martin Luther King Jr., after his church was bombed, "'We will match your capacity to inflict suffering with our capacity to endure suffering. We will meet your physical force with soul force. We will not hate you, but we cannot in all good conscience obey your unjust laws, and we will soon wear you down by our capacity to suffer. And in winning our freedom, we will so appeal to your heart and conscience that we will win yours in the process. And so love, meets pain, and it turns, when it opens, into this connectedness to that pain and the courage of compassion. When it meets joy or happiness in another, it turns into mudita and joy, and we'll be talking about that. And when it meets wisdom, when it has this great perspective, then it turns into equanimity, into peace with all things. and We'll unpack all of these. But for tonight... I want to talk about the second of these, of love, meeting, pain, and becoming compassion. And it seems especially important to talk about because we have the privilege of sitting in the orchestra, in the first row seats. You think you're in the orchestra, but we actually have the first row seats in interviews. And you come in and we get the this, magnificent display of humanity, of tears and longing and openness and closeness and, you know, um, the beauty of your hearts and the deep fears that you might encounter. We get it, it's like going to the opera, you know, Wagner. I mean, this is serious. And it's, it's magnificent, it's really beautiful because in your practice you are opening to your own humanity. And to do this, to do this requires a deep compassion. The Buddha looked out after his enlightenment on the night of his awakening, the Bodhi tree entering, receiving, coming to this enormous and liberating freedom of nirvana. He looked out across the world and he saw beings everywhere wanting to be happy, yet doing often the very things that cause more suffering. Wanting to be happy, but out of their fear and confusion, acting with greed and hatred and all kinds of barriers and all the things that we do. And he began to weep because people so wanted happiness and they were so confused. And that's what inspired him to go out for 45 years and walk the forests and the dusty roads of India for 45 years and offer teachings of liberation, teachings of happiness. Because of this, the tears that came, he he surveyed the world, it said, with the eye of a Buddha, and there arose this enormous compassion. And again, you know, I like to look at these images up here, even they're just artist images, but there's some sense that I get of Prajnaparamita and the Buddha looking at you with both courage, kind of, you know, bucking you up, saying, yes, you can do this, and with tremendous compassion for your lives. And it's also said that, then tears began to roll down his cheeks, and they touched the earth. They sprung up as Tara in one story, as the, like Kuan Yin, as the goddess of infinite compassion out of the Buddhist tears. So, Compassion is the natural quivering of the heart in the face of suffering, of ourselves or another being. And it is so natural. My favorite kindergarten teacher, Peggy, <laughs> um, was, told me about a class that she was leading, the kindergarten kids, just at the beginning of the staging of the Iraq, war. And because her school was on the flyway from one of the big um, air bases, there were all these transport planes and things that were taking off. And one day one flew very low over the school. It was clearly a war plane, although it was a big transport plane. And the kids were out playing and it was really loud because they don't have the same uh, noise reduction uh, um, laws for military aircraft. And the kids got really frightened and they all came running in and they said, what is that? It looks like an army, an air force plane. And she said, yes, it is. Um, why is that flying? And and she said, well, your parents may have been talking about it. You saw on television perhaps that we're about to have a war with Iraq. It's far away. Have you heard about most of them had, they talked a little bit about the war and they said, well, what's on that plane do you think? Are there bombs? Maybe guns? Yeah. Soldiers. You know, weapons, bombs. And then one of the kids said, well, do they have kids there in Iraq like us? And Peggy said, they do. And then this little boy said, well, they must not know that. They wouldn't send all those bombs over there if there were kids like us. They must not know that, we have to tell them. And so for the next hour, they took all the paper and plates, everything that they could get, and went out in the yard and made this big, huge image of a child and then spelled it Iraq. Peggy gave them the words, I-R-A-Q. Big enough so that they could see it from the air so that they would know there were children in Iraq. Compassion is the innate... A natural movement of the heart in sympathy with the suffering of another or of ourselves. And now in interpersonal neurobiology, there are all the explanations of mirror neurons. And we're actually, we're in a resonant field with other beings. And there's all kinds of ways to measure it. But basically, the heart is a knowing organ. And when you talk about Um, awakening in Buddhist countries and language in Pali and Sanskrit, the word for heart and mind, chitta. it's the same word. It's the heart-mind that awakens. So this is your own heart that's awakening, like those children. Now, the sympathy is there as children, but in the same way, It's there as adults. This from an amazing book called Tattoos on the Heart. Well, Father Greg Boyle, who works with some of these kids that I know, because I've been doing some work with gang kids in L.A. and where he works in other places, Oakland and so forth. And so he's working in uh, in the middle of Los Angeles in the projects. And he went to a church where he was one of the You know, I guess he was the priest there at that time. And I turned, I hadn't been in the community that long, and I go to this church, I'm supposed to do a morning mass, and I'm startled by letters spray-painted across the front steps crudely that says, "Wetback Church. And the chill of it, he said, stop me. In an instant, you doubt the price of what you're doing because this was a church which had taken in people who were refugees, immigrants in different ways. And I'm so upset, and I meet, I go inside, and before we do our service, I talk to all these people who gather, and I say, one of our our jobs in Los Angeles for Homeboy Industries, which he started, is removing graffiti. I'll get some of the homies down here and we'll remove all this graffiti, and it's a terrible thing, and I'm so sorry. And then one of the older... Chicano woman, who's usually quiet, stands up on a chair because she's short and she wants to be seen, and waves her arms, and she says, you will not clean that up. And everybody becomes silent. And then she says, you will not clean this up. If there are people in our community who are disparaged and hated and left out because they are mojados, wetbacks, and then she almost leaps off the edge of the chair, then we shall be proud to call ourselves... The wet back church. And then there was a great sigh in the church because everybody understood that that's really what all, at the heart, what the teachings that they were trying to embody were about. Compassion. I forget who said it. Maybe someone can remind me. Be kind for everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. And it's so easy to judge one another, you know, here we're sitting and walking, and somebody's walking too fast or slams the door, or is eating more than they should in the dining room. Not more than they should, but more than you think they should, right? (laughs) You know, and you start to see all that. Be kind for everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. And you don't know what people are dealing within themselves, the one sitting next to you, that, you know, that looks so quiet, but in there is their whole human history. One year we had a woman sit here whose teenage daughter had um, committed suicide. And it was the anniversary of her daughter's death. A couple or a few years later, she really came here as a refuge. And it was during one of these retreats, and she said, I need to do something for my daughter, I just need to do something. So I suggested that she go out and ring the bell 108 times as a way of honoring her daughter and maybe even as a way of making a sound that was beautiful that could speak to her daughter. It was during sitting just before lunch that she went out and because it's unusual to have the bell be rung over and over, I explained to people that one of the people here's child had died and she was ringing the bell and everybody was sitting, as you do, so quietly and she'd been sitting over there very quietly and a hundred and eight times and she really whacked that thing as if somehow, if she hit it hard enough, her daughter would hear. You don't know what people are sitting with. And actually, half the time, you don't even know what you're sitting with. <laughs> but it will, it will come. It will show you. <laughs> so it's, it's really important in this not to be idealistic. Because it's a process of opening. You know, And what you are being with is what Oscar Wilde called the tainted glory of humanity. All the parts of your humanity. And I know, you know, there I am sitting at sometimes in these meetings with the Dalai Lama, and he talks about how hard it is sometimes for what's happening to bad and what he has to hold and carry. Or sometimes he gets angry and then he says, well, what's the use of that? And I let it go. We're We're human. There isn't some great ideal about how it's supposed to be. When I read Shambhala-san or Tricycle, I wonder who these people are. They admit to an occasional random thought, but it's clear they're all becoming enlightened, or at least able to dwell in clear and empty space when you read about it. And those yoga journal people, where everyone is thin, composed, and bends in all directions. Or Fortune, where everyone's a millionaire, a captain of success. So where, I ask, is the magazine for failure? For 30 years of falling, and only later recalling, yes, be here now. (laughs) For the continual recovering from the storm, the endless repairing of the broken sails. For this thick and heavy middle-aged body barely bending. For the immense gratitude in meeting once again next week's payroll, next month's rent. So it's easy to come into spiritual practice and have all these ideals. But it's not how it works. What really works is that your love and compassion grow. And that is married to freedom. It said that the Buddha or Prajnaparamita, these awakened beings that we take as sort of the archetypes, they, they move through the air like a bird with two wings. One is the wing of wisdom and the other is the heart of compassion. And they have to come together. Without that tenderness, you can't open. And you certainly can't be free with another. So you sit and it starts to display itself. What does? Well, dukkha for one thing. The sufferings of your own life, the sufferings of the community, the sufferings of the world, the the dukkha. And because you carry the images of whatever it happens to be that you've seen last of Haiti and the earthquake or of You know, the fact that there are tens of thousands of children hungry, dying, and grain elevators are full of food somewhere else in the world. And you know this somewhere in your heart, you know that Something is not right. You carry the sorrows of the world, the the follies of continuing warfare, racism, just the incredible ignorance and confusion and fear. It's in you, because we're part of it. So you sit and that stuff comes up. And then, of course, your own personal traumas and your own personal measure of sorrows. Anybody not have that here? You're excused. (laughs) And it comes in different ways. It comes through the body because we hold stuff in the body. And I remember at one point I was very quiet and doing this practice of looking for wisdom from a place of great stillness and asked for a deep understanding of, um, yeah for a deep understanding of impermanence to arise. And I was just sitting quietly and all of a sudden, my attention went to the top of my head. I thought, that's funny. Why would it go there? And then I could feel the, the lack of hair. Okay, that's impermanent. And then it moved down to my ears, and I can't hear as well as I used to. You know, you talk softly back there, and I come on, what are you saying, right? And then it went to my sinuses. You can hear them tonight. And, you know, I've had sinus surgery, or uh, allergies and stuff. Then it went to all the fillings in my teeth. Then it dropped down, you know, and it went to the place where I'd have pneumonia in my lungs. I'm not doing anything. My attention's just going there, and these images are coming. Then it went down to where the appendectomy was and placing in my lower back and, you know, down through my knees and so forth. You know, and I could feel the old cart, the Buddha said, all along, you know, with straps and leather and things kind of keeping it going. I said, okay, impermanence, I get it. Thank you. I believe it, you know. <laughs> because It is. And we each have that. We have a body. And then the question is, how do you touch it? How do you touch this magnificent, beautiful, sensuous, I mean, it's a spring day. So you get all the beauty and also all the pain of the body. One Catholic priest who was also a meditation teacher I interviewed for this book. He said, I came from a poor white family where we drank and lived hard. The men treated the body like a truck you used and ignored. In the church it got worse. I hated to deal with my body. I lived on coffee and then on scotch. Gradually, as I looked at the simple people who came to talk to me and saw how many tortured bodies there were, as well as tortured souls, my faith And love got past all that nonsense about sin and the body that the church teaches. It doesn't have to be so hard. I realized that Christ taught that I had to love my enemy, and I took a vow of nonviolence, and this included my body. My practice became, do not torment myself, do not escalate the pain. I began to teach it to others. It turned into a practice of gratitude for this body. In the morning I get up, I care for this body, it's where I start. It's it's poignant how simple it is. And so you sit and there's pains in your body and pleasures in your body. And we say, stay with it. Don't turn your gaze away from the body. Have a kind of courage. But the only way you can do it Is also to have compassion, because it's just the body, and it has its pleasures, and it has its pains. It's not even your body. If you look closely, you'll start to see it's this human, amazing incarnation body, and you get to treasure it, enjoy it, you know, and suffer in it, and do all the things incarnation does. It takes a lot of compassion to be with the body, and a certain courage to not turn your gaze. We're not talking about just, oh, nice, nice, there, there. Let's make everything as comfortable as possible. Sometimes you have to sit and it hurts, or it's hot, or it's cold, or it's scary. You know, and I don't mean to misuse your body at all. You want to be compassionate and take care of it. But part of the practice is a willingness to tend the body exactly where you are and to stay with it. Does this make sense? So there's a, it's an interesting thing about compassion. Sometimes the most compassionate thing is not to run away from the pain, not to run away from what's difficult. And I don't mean you make it or you hurt your body in some way, but it's this willingness to feel the full weight of incarnation with compassion and see it. Then deep wisdom comes or you stay with the river of feelings. The Buddha talked about the five skandhas there, I think, best translated as five rivers. River of sensations and the body, pleasant, neutral, unpleasant. River of feelings, just keep streaming through the reality of the present. The river of perceptions, the river of thoughts, I'm sure you've noticed that one. The river of consciousness. So I have this list of 500 feelings, (laughs) affectionate, ambitious, aggressive, anguished, ambivalent, angry, amused, amorous, aversive, antagonistic, antsy, apathetic, apoplectic appreciative, argumentative. It goes on through the A's, then to the B's, blissful, brokenhearted, bonkers, bored, bad. I mean, so many feelings. Calm, cheerful, claustrophobic, compassionate, curious, contracted, defiant, delighted, depressed, disheartened. I mean, it's amazing, the river of feelings. So what do you do? You sit here, and they play through consciousness. It's what happens. Yes? And your task isn't to stop the river, but to rest in awareness, in mindfulness, and say, ah, this is the river of feelings. This is the body. This is the feelings. For the Lakota Sioux, because sometimes this river has your grief in it. For the Lakota Sioux, grief was valued. And Trudy was talking to us as a group of teachers today, talking about how we really should have a... a, wailing hut here someplace where you can cry and hear some it's completely fine and when you cry some it helps everybody else they all go ah oh, oh, it's fine but sometimes you really want to wail you know and it's like i need a place and it's raining and the dorm walls are like that thin you know we should have a little wailing hut or something for Lakota Sioux, grief was valued it brought a person closer to the gods a person who'd suffered a great loss and was grieving, were considered the most wakan, the most holy. Their prayers were believed to be especially powerful, and others would ask them to pray on their behalf. So compassion means to allow your tears and your grief and longing and your love and your loneliness and your magnificence of desire and, you know, affection and appreciative and amused and amorous, as well as averse of apoplectic and, you know, argumentative, to allow all of that with the great heart of compassion. Yes, this too. To touch what arises with a kind of mercy instead of judging yourself and this river so much. It's just the river of incarnation. And wisdom comes when you allow it. Of course, sometimes you don't like the feelings that come, and it's hard to hold them in compassion. The person who, really being on the way, writes Karl Fried, and Turkheim, who was a Zen teacher in Europe, who falls upon hard times in the world will not, as a consequence, turn to those friends who offer refuge and comfort and encourage their old self to survive. Rather, they seek out someone who will faithfully and inexorably help them to risk themselves so that they may endure the difficulty and pass courageously through it. Only to the extent that a person exposes themselves over and over again to annihilation can that which is indestructible be found within them. In this daring lies dignity and the spirit of true compassion to let yourself go through what's come, what comes to you as the Buddha that you are with great compassion. Body, how do you touch this body? Can you honor it? Can you really love it? Can you feel compassion for the struggles of the body? Tend it and stay with it. Feelings, mind, thoughts. You remember that cartoon from the New Yorker of the car crossing the Utah desert and the roadside billboard, I don't think I said it yet in this retreat, that says, your own tedious thoughts next 200 miles, right? <laughs> it's a description of meditation. It's mostly stories. And if you haven't noticed, it's talk radio. <laughs> and it's pretty sad, you know, because it's full of judgments and it's full of, You know, not only the the judge and the jury is in there, guilty, you know, and it's got all that. And you have inner terror alerts. You'll see it. Code orange today, right? (laughs) You do. And the inner, you know, Berlin Wall, or now it's the Palestinian, you've got all this stuff in you and all these voices that keep coming and planning and telling you stories. And the thing is you believe them. Compassion is to simply know the stories and know that they're not the real story. They're ephemeral, they're thoughts, and they have power if you follow them and you get in lots of trouble. But, and they have creativity, which is fine, but most of the thoughts, first of all, you don't need most of them. You could do with about 2% of your thoughts and manage very well. The rest are repeats. They are. You've noticed that. They just kind of cycle over and over again. right? But more deeply than that, my teacher, Dasargadat, in India, an old guru, he said, the mind creates the abyss and the heart crosses it. And when you see that there's lots of thoughts, there's usually something cooking underneath you're bored, and then under that boredom is, I don't know who I am, emptiness, lack of identity, or, or the thoughts keep going. And if you ask, well, what what would I be feeling if I wasn't so lost in thought? Oh, I feel the grief that I carry, or the, or the spiritual longing, or something that's under there. Again, from uh, Tattoos on the Heart, this is Father Greg m- meeting with this gang kid who comes in. And they're at a a little gathering. Guys are going to come and maybe work for homeboys. And he said, there's one scowling kid who comes in who's like 17 years old. Scowl right on his face. So he sits down. I sit right opposite him. I look at him. I say, say, what's your name, homie? Sniper, he sneers. There's a name for you. Okay, look, I've been down this block before. I have a feeling you didn't pop out of your mom. She took one look at your ass and said, Sniper, so come on, dog, what's your name? (laughs) Gonzales, he relents a little. Okay now, son, I know the staff here will call you by your last name. I'm not down with that. Tell me, mijo, what's your mom call you? Cabron. There's even the slightest flicker of innocence in his answer. Oye, no cabe duda. But son I'm looking for bir- not looking for birth certificate here. The kid softens. I can tell it's happening, but there's embarrassment and a newfound vulnerability. he manages to squeak out pronouncing it in Spanish. Wow, I say, that's a fine noble historic name, but I'm almost positive that when you're just Jafita calls you. She doesn't use the whole nine yardists. Come on, mijito, do you have a napado? What's your mom call you? And then I watch him go to some far distant place, a location he has not visited in a long time. His voice, body language, whole being take on a new shape right before his eyes. Sometimes, his voice so quiet, I lean in. Sometimes, when my mom's not mad at me, she calls me napito. And I watched this kid move, transformed from Sniper, to Gonzales, to Cabron, to Napoleon, to Napito. We all just want to be called by the name our mom uses when she's not pissed off at us. (laughs) And this is really, the mind creates the abyss and the heart crosses it. You can see all the thoughts and ideas and how your practice is supposed to be and how this and that and stories of the past and future. And then you take a breath and you say, oh yeah, thank you for your opinion. You know, there's the stories. And then you drop with compassion. You don't have to fight the mind. You just see this is the river of thoughts, quite compassion, and you drop into the heart. Here we are. but it's hard. We're afraid that the heart isn't big enough to hold all the pain that we carry or that it's not big enough to hold the pain of the world that is somehow also resonant in us. You know, we don't, we're don't. we not sure we can bear it and the pain of the culture. This is a letter from the Sun magazine that, I heard Leela read the beautiful letter, beautiful and difficult. Am I gorgeous? My child asks, drawing the word out like pulled taffy. Yes, I say you are. The pink and teal dress is probably made of highly flammable material, some chemist's approximation of tulle and satin. Pudgy fingers decorated with pink polish trace the sequins on the bodice. I love this. A giant pair of bubblegum pink wings flap slowly. Little feet dance in sparkly red slippers. I'm just like a real princess. Yes, I say you are. Thick blonde hair, blue eyes, rosy cheeks, flawless skin. This child is the American epitome of beauty. This child, my son. He's four years old and prefers to wear dresses. Maybe it's a phase and maybe not. Even as I wonder how I produce such an angelic-looking creature, I wish he would put on some pants and go back to play with toy tractors, not because it matters to me, it doesn't, but because I'm already hearing in my head the name-calling he will face in kindergarten. Many adults already seem a bit disturbed by the dresses. Strangers utter awkward apologies when they realize he's not female. This culture wants little boys to dream only of baseball and trucks and trains. This culture has no room for little boys who want to be gorgeous. He picks up a parasol a neighbor gave him and opens it jauntily over his shoulder. Am I beautiful, he asks. I sweep him into my arms and plant a kiss on his cheek. Always, I say. And it breaks your heart to hear it doesn't it? Because you know what the culture can do to people in all different ways who are marginalized and lost and targeted and, you know, abused and basically who scare other people about some part of themselves. And you wonder Is the heart big enough for all of the sorrows of the world, what the Buddha called the ocean of tears? Hafiz puts it this way. He says, fear is the cheapest room in the house. I'd like to see you in better living conditions. You have within you the great heart of a Buddha. It was born in you, it cannot be taken away, and it can hold all of this. It really can, and it's part of why you practice. And all the things that you go through. And you learn it in these different ways. You learn it from one another through a kind of intimacy. Suzuki Roshi said that the Dharma is passed from warm hand to warm hand. And somehow just the willingness of the people sitting around you to hold you with the respect that they do on their good days anyway, you know. I mean, it makes a huge difference. It does. And you start to feel it from the teachers and the cooks and the the land and even the deer are really, they're cheering you on in some way. Two women in nearby northern towns in far north Canada were forced to venture out in a fierce winter storm to attend to family emergencies. One needed to take her pregnant daughter to the hospital and the other was called to take care of her quite sick father. They made their way along this highway from opposite directions through hurricane winds and drifting snows. And then they both found themselves stopped on opposite sides of a huge tree that had fallen blocking the road. It took only a few minutes for them to tell each other their stories, exchange car keys, get in the (laughs) other's car, turn them around and set forth to complete their journey. Compassion is learned from one another. We learn it all the time. Somebody opens the door for you, just the way that somebody walks in here with a kind of graciousness and you go, oh yeah, thank you. We are woven together in a network of mutuality, a single garment of destiny, as Martin Luther King said. In India, you go to a teacher and sometimes you receive what's called the glance of mercy. They just look at you and it's not that they want to give you any teachings at all. They just see you and see all the sorrows that you carry and all the magnificent beauty that you are. And that's all it takes, really, is just to be seen and loved with that much heart, that much understanding. And I got that from Deepa Ma. There were certain moments I was with her and she was so loving, it was like, just being bowled over from her. And I just start to grin and I would grin for like three days. It was like stoned, wow, amazing. Love plus samadhi plus I don't know what other power she had and it was really kind of amazing. You know, and it doesn't take but a moment to remember this, to, to receive it from another or a flower out there or the, or the bird that goes by. But the intimacy of the world wants to awaken your compassion from one person to another. Mother Teresa, when she visited San Quentin, which she did, and talked to the prisoners and so forth, and then at some point, um, she asked, could she do anything for them? And you know, they said some things. And then, then one of the prisoners said, can we, we love you, mother. Is there anything we can do for you, for your work? How can we help? She said, yes please pray for me. It's an amazing thing to go in San Quentin and say, Mother, be Mother Trace," and say, pray for me. But she needed it. I mean, we all need it. So there's the intimacy. When you let yourself feel the world and it's always coming in, you learn compassion. It just wants to teach you, warm hand to warm hand. And it only takes a moment This was a note that someone showed to a friend who this person had been quite desperate. Unfortunately, it worked out okay. The note that he had written said, if one person smiles at me on the way to the bridge, I won't jump. How's that? And somebody did. And he brought the note back home. It doesn't take a lot to do that for another or for yourself. So that's one way it comes. Another way it comes is through a vast perspective, this great space. Buddha was sitting with his son, Rahula, and said, make your mind like the sky, Rahula. Make your mind so open that all things can come and go and you are spacious with it. Make your mind like the earth everything can be placed on and in the earth, and the earth remains and receives it all. A vast perspective of this great dance to see, like these images evoke with the eye of compassion, the ocean of tears and the magnificence of beauty, the unbearable beauty of the world that are woven together. In uh, Colorado... There's an artist, a woman, who made something called the Salt Monument. And she made this beautiful handmade wooden dome that's like 15, 20 feet high. And in the middle of it is a 10 or 12 foot high lucite crystal shaped like a salt crystal made out of plastic and filled with, however many it is now, 6.9 billion grains of salt one grain of salt for every person on earth. And it's mounted in such a way that it turns every 24 hours as the earth turns. And she's the priestess of the salt monument. And every night before she goes to sleep, she draws out a little container of 200,000 grains of salt for each person that has died this day pours them back into the earth and says a prayer. And every morning when she wakes up, she takes a slightly bigger container and pours in 250,000, quarter of a million grains of salt for everyone being born that day as the earth turns and says a prayer for them. an Amazing piece of art. This is called a big perspective. Yeah. But it's also the perspective, it's the perspective of the one who knows in you who knows that you are part of eternity as much as you are part of this unique individual incarnation and something in you knows this so deeply. Intimacy, a vast perspective and then the question of intention that you raise, can this too be met with compassion? And think about your practice here. You're sitting, you're walking, you're eating, the room you're in, the work meditation you have, the struggles that there are in each of these, the stuff that's coming up, sometimes beautiful things, sometimes very painful things. Can this too be held in compassion? This little story reminds me of just what Trudy talked about the other night I can find it. A woman named Dorothea talks about how every evening in the apartment building she lives, she hears her neighbor's baby girl crying in the apartment in the bedroom next to hers. The parents put the child to sleep alone in the dark. The baby cries for a long time while the parents watch television. The baby's desperate crying expresses all her anguish, her solitude, her loneliness. What should Dorothea do? She's uncertain. Speaking to the parents often can make things worse. You know this. You have to be careful. She decides to sing. Just as she can hear the baby, the baby can hear her. Every evening when they put the baby to bed, Dorothy sings her sweet lullabies, talks to her through the thin walls, consoles and comforts her. The baby hears the invisible friendly voice, stops crying and falls asleep peacefully. The warmth of a stranger's voice has saved her from the icy cold of loneliness. Can you hold this in compassion? It's so mysterious to be human. Nobody really understands how we got here, but here we are in this. And the redemption of the world is the liberated heart. The liberated heart has freedom and graciousness to it as the Buddha Prashnaparamita does. And it has compassion. <sighs> Intimacy from warm hand to warm hand, the glance of mercy, the world wanting to invite you to compassion. A vast perspective. This is life, this is how it is. No one is exempt. Intention, as Nelson Mandela said, if people can be taught to hate, they can be taught to love. And you can learn compassion. And there's practice, maybe we'll do, we will do a compassion practice here. I won't do it tonight, but we will do one And as you do this, as you offer yourself in courage and compassion in your practice, not only does your life change, but because you are interwoven, the world changes. Our world is created out of our hearts and minds. And so Black Elk, who was one of the greatest of the Oglala Sioux, Medicine man of the last century and more was in this beautiful. Was interviewed by this uh, anthropologist and companion, really John Neihart, who wrote a book many of you may have read called Black Elk Speaks. And in the last chapter of this quite amazing book, Neihart tells of Black Elk's final journey up Harney Peak which is one of the highest peaks in the Dakotas. Um, and that's where Black Elk, when he was a young man, had had his amazing visions that made him a medicine person. And the Sioux Holy Man explained to Neihart that when death approaches, a Lakota could climb this mountain to see if the Great Father or the Great Spirit had approved of his, his or her life and rain would fall on those who had the great spirit's approval. And in these dry lands, rain was really important. As a young man, Black Elk had a vision that told him how to save his people and homeland from the ravaging of the soldiers and the settlers. In all his years, he had worked to fulfill this vision and restore what he called the sacred hoop or circle or mandala of life. However, he felt that he had failed and that the sacred hoop was broken. The day of his climb, Black Elk was an old man. He dressed in red long johns, moccasins, war paint, and a feathered war headdress. Slowly and laboriously, he climbed to the summit. He was oblivious to the tourist who stared at him. And Nyhart teased him that he should have picked a day with at least one cloud in the sky. But Black Elk rebuked him, saying that the rain would have nothing to do with the weather. At the top of the peak, not far from the tourist, the old man lay down under a blue sky, and to his astonishment, Nihard watched as a few small clouds immediately formed over Black Elk, and a soft rain began to fall. Black Elk well, wept with relief. He felt that even though he had not succeeded in fulfilling his vision, the Great Spirit was signaling him that he had done his best. And here we are in the, the rain of spring, you know, everything out there is dancing and awakening and budding and blooming and blossoming and frolicking in certain cases, you know, and the fawns are gonna be coming along pretty soon and it's 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 rebirthing itself and so are you. And you can feel the rain come down and this is like potted Buddha plants right in this hall we're like the greenhouse with all these little potted Buddhas and it's tough sometimes dig around fertilize you know the roots aren't so good whatever (laughs) compassion is the rain compassion is the rain and the steadiness of your courage and mindfulness is what starts to blossom with this compassion stay with it stay with a compassionate heart for each of the things that arise and you will surely be blessed as Black Elk was. So let's just sit for a moment. Later in this week, we will do compassion practice during the Brahmavihara meditation. Meanwhile, you can do your own compassion practice. Thank you.